Well, good morning. It is good to see you this morning. It is good to be with you this morning. We are continuing our sermon series going through the book of Galatians, and our sermon text this morning is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. When it comes to parenting, I fail in more ways than I can keep track of. And one of the examples would be instances where I have made use of empty threats. I cringe when I catch myself using empty threats. Why did I threaten that consequence when I know I am not going to follow through with said consequence? Why do I do this? One example would be a while back when my wife and I had planned a, a vacation for our family. A wonderful vacation. It was going to be a blessing for all of us. We had committed to it, and then we told the kids about it, and they were excited about it. But at some point in time, between when we committed to it and told our kids we were going, and we actually went, I said something along the lines of, if you don't do this, we're not going to go on that trip. As soon as I said that, I was like, that's not true. Why did I just lie to my children? The bottom line was, we were going to follow through on the vacation that we planned and committed to on this good thing. We were going to do this good thing even if they sinned. Would there be other consequences for disobedience? Yes. It's not that we don't discipline our children, but not, but not canceling the trip because we had made a commitment to do this good thing for them. And they knew. They knew they didn't need to fear that we were actually going to go back on our plan, even if they fell short. In our passage this morning, we are going to see the relationship between God's promise and God's law. What we will see is that God's promise, which he gave to Abraham in the book of Genesis, came before God's law which he gave to his people at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. The law, which revealed and increased people's sinfulness, did not negate the promise God made to Abraham. The order of the giving of the promise and the giving of the law served to support Paul's argument in Galatians regarding how we are justified. Justification refers to God's declaration that we are not guilty, that we are forgiven of our sin, and that we are righteous. In the first part of chapter 3, Paul made his case to the Christians in Galatia that they did not need to be circumcised in order to belong to the people of God, which can also be referred to as the family of Abraham. Christians are those who are justified by faith and not works of the law. Those who believe in Jesus are declared not guilty, forgiven of sin, and righteous. Moreover, those who place their faith in Jesus receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is the sign that one belongs to the people of God, not obedience to law in general and the practice of circumcision in particular. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so too we believe in Christ and are counted as righteous in the eyes 
of the Lord. And then last week we saw in verses 10 through 14 how Paul critiqued those who trust in their ability to obey God's law. He said, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Those who rely on works of the law, meaning those who put their trust in their ability to obey the law, will not be justified, but are under a curse. As a matter of fact, anyone who does not fully obey the law is under a curse. Our only hope for someone, our only hope is for someone to redeem us from the curse. And thanks be to God that he sent Jesus Christ into the world to redeem us from the curse. Jesus came into the world so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, in our passage this morning, he began to unpack what he meant by that. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. I encourage you to follow along. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Uh, intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In verse 15, Paul continued to impress upon his readers the truth that we are justified by faith and not works of the law. He did so in, in this part of the letter by unpacking redemptive history. He had already referenced Abraham several times in chapter 3. He said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He said that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And as I just read in verse 14, he said, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that 
we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Clearly, Abraham was prominent in Paul's thinking as he wrote this letter, as he was making this argument, as he was trying to persuade the Galatians. Why was this the case? Why did he repeatedly refer to Abraham? Well, in our passage this morning, he explained why. First, he gave the example of a man-made covenant. Even in the case of a man-made covenant, which is flimsier than a covenant made by God, you can't change the terms after it has been agreed upon and ratified. It may seem obvious, but when a deal is done, it's a done deal. You cannot change the terms and conditions after it has been signed and sealed. We sold a house last year. It would not have worked out very well if after agreeing to terms and everyone signing, we said, well, we're not actually going to give you the keys unless you give us more than what we agreed upon. That would not have worked out very well. You can't do that. And if people understand that we can't do that, then of course, God is not going to do that. John Stott said, if, if a man's will cannot be set aside or added to, much more are the promises of God immutable. If it doesn't work that way with a man-made covenant, then it most certainly doesn't work with a covenant made by God. Paul then used that illustration as a means of comparison with the covenant that the Lord made with Abraham. He said, now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. What promises was he referring to? Well, if you're not familiar with Abraham's history with the Lord, you can read about it in the book of Genesis. When the Lord, uh, when the Lord first called Abraham, whose name was Abram, he called him to leave his homeland and extended family and go to a place the Lord would eventually reveal to him. In other words, he asked him to take a huge step of faith. But when he did so, he made him a promise. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 13, 14 to 17, the Lord expanded on the promise where he said, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And in Genesis 17, 8, he reiterated the promise. He said, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so what we see in these passages is that God made Abram four basic promises. Promised him offspring, land, blessing for Abram himself and the blessing of the nations 
through Abram. Keith Matheson writes, in terms of God's kingdom purposes, the land promise indicates that God has not abandoned his plan to establish his kingdom on earth. The promise of offspring is also related to God's ultimate kingdom purposes. Just as the land promise provides a realm for God's kingdom in the midst of his creation, the promise of offspring anticipates a people for his kingdom. Abram is promised offspring, a land, and personal blessing in order that he might be the mediator of God's blessing to all the families of the earth. This blessing will come through the establishment of God's kingdom. In other words, the Lord made this fourfold promise to Abram that would have wonderful, glorious, eternal implications for him and his descendants. Now, in referencing this, Paul said, The promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, singular, who was Christ. Many scholars have noted that Paul knew as well as anybody that the word offspring could be used in a collective sense, even when the word appears in the singular. In other words, offspring, singular, can refer to descendants, plural. But as Alan Cole writes, Paul is saying in typically Jewish fashion that there is an appropriateness in the use of the singular form here, in that the true fulfillment came only in connection with one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus completes and fulfills the promise that God made to Abraham. Paul's point, his main point, was that a covenant promise was in fact made with Abraham as the beneficiary. It is also true that his offspring was a further beneficiary And the offspring ultimately and finally refers to Jesus. In verses 17 through 18, he returns to the primary point that the covenant promise was made to Abraham. Moreover, the covenant promise was made to Abraham long before the law was introduced. The law, which the Lord gave to his people at Mount Sinai through Moses, was given 430 years after the promise was made to Abraham. And what Paul was trying to do was help the Galatians have a right understanding of the relationship between the covenant promise and the law. Just as a man cannot change the conditions of a covenant after it has been ratified, so God will not change the terms of a covenant promise he has made after he has made the promise. It's not as though the Lord made a promise to Abraham And then 430 years later said, you know what? I know I made this promise, but if you really want to secure this promise, if you actually want me to follow through with this promise, then you have to follow the law. Otherwise, I'm not going to follow through with this good thing that I've committed to doing. No, that is not the case. How could we possibly trust the Lord if he made promises and said, I am going to do these things, and then added stipulations later as a requirement to deliver on the promises he already made? The scriptures impress upon us the trustworthiness of the Lord. In Psalm 145, 13, we read, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. 
the Lord is faithful in all his words. He always does what he says he will do. He is completely and utterly trustworthy. The false teachers in Galatia were likely teaching that our Christian inheritance depends on our obedience to the law. They probably argued that God made a promise to Abraham and his offspring, and the way to get in on that promise was to obey the law that he gave through Moses. But Paul said, no, that is not the case. You are misunderstanding the relationship between the promise made to Abraham and the law given through Moses. God made the covenant promise. He said definitively, not conditionally, that he was going to give this inheritance. If the inheritance comes by law, then it depends, then it does not depend on God's faithfulness to his promise. Rather, it depends on your obedience to the law. Tim Keller writes, for a promise to bring a result, it needs only be believed. But for a law to bring a result, it has to be obeyed. For example, if I say to you, my Uncle Jack wants to meet you and give you $10 million, the only way you can probably fail to receive the $10 million is if you fail to believe the claim. If you just laugh and go home, rather than going to see Uncle Jack, you may never get the money. But if, on the other hand, I say to you, my Uncle Jack is willing to leave you his inheritance of $10 million, but you have to go live with him and take care of him in his old age, then you have to fulfill the requirement and condition if you are going to get the money a gift promise needs only to be believed and received but a law wage must be obeyed to be received our inheritance comes to us through god's promise fulfilled in jesus christ not by way of our obedience to the law so what is our inheritance in Romans 4.13, we read, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Tom Schreiner expounds on the inheritance reference in Galatians 13, where he writes, The promise of the inheritance cannot be restricted ultimately to Canaan, but anticipates inheriting the world. Elsewhere, Abraham asserts that Abraham is heir of the world. Romans 4.13, the expectation of a new world, a transformed universe, accords with what we find elsewhere in the New Testament. To speak of an inheritance, then, is another way of describing the possession of eschatological salvation. Our salvation and everything that comes with our salvation. This is our inheritance. And our inheritance comes with a wonderful and glorious future. We are given a beautiful picture of our inheritance in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, which reads, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Oh, this is our glorious future. This is our inheritance. This is what awaits us. We place our faith in Jesus Christ. And by faith, we are justified. And by faith, we are the recipients of this wonderful and glorious inheritance. We receive God's promises by faith. In light of this, Paul anticipates a question or even an, an objection. Well, if the inheritance comes by the promise that the Lord made to Abraham long before the law was introduced, then what was the purpose of the law? Why did the Lord give his people the law if his plan did not depend on their obedience to the law, but his faithfulness to his promise? He answered this question by teaching them the law was added because of transgressions. The law was not given to help people secure the promise. It was not as though God was saying, I'm making you this promise, but you need to secure it by obeying the law. No, the law was added because of transgressions, which means it reveals and increases our sin. Therefore, the law leads to death. It enslaves those who are under its authority. To be under the law is to be under the power and authority of sin. In Galatians 3.10, Paul already said, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed be everyone who does not do all things in the law. Who does that include? That includes all of us. As Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one can come close to upholding all of God's law. All of us fail miserably. We sin against the Lord in our thoughts, even in our thinking. We think thoughts that are evil. We sin against the Lord, and He is able to see our thoughts. We sin against the Lord in our words. We say things that are sinful. We sin against the Lord even in what we say. We sin against the Lord in our deeds. We all do things that are sinful in the Lord's eyes. We even sin against the Lord in what we fail to do. There are good things the Lord commands us to do that we do not do, and that is sin. We sin against the Lord in a myriad of ways. The law exposes and increases our transgressions. The law reveals who we are and what we need. The purpose of the law is to enclose all under sin and to increase transgression so that we recognize that we are sinners and so that we see our need for a Savior, so that we understand Salvation only comes through 
faith in Christ. The law makes that clear to us. The law makes clear to us, unless we are profoundly deceived, that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves, who are in desperate need of a Savior. And the law points us to that Savior. It points us to Jesus Christ, who is the only one who perfectly obeyed the law of God in his life. He is the only one who lived a perfectly righteous life. Does that make the law contrary to the promises of God? No, it does not. The law and the promises are not contrary, but they do play different roles and have different functions. The law taught people how to live in a way that pleases the Lord, but did not give them the power to do so. The law, which reveals God's will, does not produce life. The promise does bring life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The law then serves the promise by demonstrating that the only way a person can become righteous in the eyes of the Lord is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The law serves the promise. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners who have failed miserably to uphold the law. The gospel, the good news, is that God saves sinners who are under a curse because of our sin. God made every one of us in his image to know him, to enjoy him, to obey him, and to glorify him. He created us with this wonderful purpose to enjoy fellowship with him. And we have all rejected his purpose for our lives. We have all rejected him as our king. We have all rejected him as our God by sinning against him. Our sin is a rejection of God and his purpose for our lives. Yet God in his mercy and his kindness has provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sin and to be reconciled to him. He has provided a way for our relationship with him to be restored. And he has done so by providing Jesus Christ as the savior of the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and me. And unlike us, he lived a life without sin. He perfectly obeyed God's law. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And he did so for our sake. And then he went to the cross to take the punishment we deserve in our place. He went to the cross to take God's wrath upon himself, the wrath that we deserve because we have sinned, even though he did not sin. He took God's wrath in our place so that we can escape the judgment we all deserve. And after he died, he rose from the grave conquering death, and he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will return. There will be a final judgment and the only way to escape the wrath that we deserve at the final judgment is to put your faith in jesus christ if you are not a christian the good news for you is that even though you are a sinner like the rest of us you can receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life through faith in jesus christ our greatest hope and desire and prayer for you if you're not a christian is that today you will put your faith in christ 
and be saved. This is the gospel. This is good news. This is what sets us apart as Christians. Not that we are good people, not that we have obeyed God's law, not that we have lived moral lives, but we have put our faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. The law cannot produce life. The law cannot transform our hearts. The law cannot change our nature. We need something more powerful. We need the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to save and transform sinners like us. Paul described the relationship between God's promise and God's law to help us understand that we are justified by faith and not works of the law. He wanted us to understand that we received the promise, our glorious inheritance, by faith according to God's grace. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's not as though God made this promise and then is threatening us with these threats. If you don't obey, then I'm not going to deliver on this good thing that I promised to do for you. He's not like me, thankfully. He makes a promise, and he delivers on that promise. And even though we sin and fall short and disobey, he says, believe me, trust in me. Put your faith in me, and you will receive. You will receive this inheritance. You will receive all the benefits of these promises I've made. You fall short. You disobey. You sin. I have provided a way for you to be forgiven. Believe in me. Our passage also serves the purpose of bolstering our confidence in the promises of God. As the psalm I read earlier said, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. His words, his promises are true, and he is faithful to deliver. Consider his words toward us. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Hebrews 13, 5, the Lord said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. In 1 Peter 5, we read, Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, we are told that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And now listen to Ephesians 1.11-14 where Paul wrote, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we 
who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. These words are for us. These promises are for us. He gives us these good promises. It's not only about our future. He is with us now. We can now, today, cast our burdens onto him. We can go to him and receive rest for our souls and receive relief from our burdens. We can go to him knowing that his love, which is the best thing that we have, cannot be taken from us. And we cannot lose it. We can lose things in this life. Things can be taken from us. But we cannot lose the best thing that we have, and that is the love of God in Christ Jesus. We cannot lose it, and it cannot be taken from, it cannot be taken from us. In our inheritance, which is promised to us, which we receive by faith, is guaranteed. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a, as a down payment, as a guarantee. We receive the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Meaning, you believe in Him, you trust in Him. He gives you your hope, the Holy Spirit. And therefore, you will inherit what He promised. You will, you will stumble. You will fall. You will sin. You will not be able to obey God's law. But that doesn't take away from the fact that God's going to deliver on his promise and he gives you the Holy Spirit to seal it. It depends on him, his faithfulness, his spirit, which he has given to you. He has guaranteed it and he has sealed it through the Holy Spirit. By faith, we receive these good promises. By faith, our inheritance is guaranteed. and We receive the Holy Spirit who seals that for us. God is the one who makes the promise. God is the one who fulfills his promise. God is the one who gives us the Holy Spirit to guarantee that we will inherit these good promises. Our confidence is meant to be in him, not in our ability to obey the law. We don't trust in ourselves. We don't rely on ourselves. We put our faith in him. And our confidence is in him, that we are justified, that because we put our faith in him, we're not guilty. We're forgiven. We're actually righteous. He wants us to have confidence in him. It is false humility to say, well, I don't know if I'm righteous because I'm, I'm a sinner. Yes, you're a sinner. But you're meant to have confidence in the Lord, his declaration that you are innocent, that you are righteous, that you are completely and utterly forgiven. It is a good thing to have confidence in him, not yourself. And it is a good thing to have confidence that he delivers on his promises. He wants you to believe. In light of this, I want to ask you this morning, what burdens are you carrying? What trial are you going through right now? What are you worried about? What is causing you to be discouraged? What is weighing on your heart and mind? Whatever it is, 
the Lord knows and he cares for you. There may not be an easy resolution to whatever you're going through, but the Lord wants you to remember his words. He wants you to remember his promises. He wants you to lift your eyes, to look upon him. He wants you to go to him. He wants you to find refuge in him. He wants you to find rest for your souls in him. He wants you to find comfort and peace in him. He wants you to delight in him. He wants you to be confident in him. And he wants you to be confident that you will inherit everything that he has promised to give you. He is faithful to his promises. Let's trust in him. Let's believe in him. May our confidence be in him. Let's pray.